0: Sorry, I'm just going to invite people to ask you a few things, because um, we were talking before about happiness, and those clips there are all you know, about you talking about what makes us happy. And I've always been someone who quite enjoys being miserable. <laughs> so I'm not sure happiness is actually a very good thing to aim at. Um, and There's a lot more to life than being happy, you know. What about,
1: <laughs> what about? I think it's Aristotle
0: right. would take issue with you there, but then he might be my I, uh, <laughs> <actually,
1: laughs>
0: I don't remember. Yeah, actually, yeah. I don't think yeah. he would. I think the, the idea of, you know. of a flourishing life, eudaimonia, yeah. in Aristotle yeah. actually contains all the elements of human life. I think life. you're probably right. It's not just a narrow conception of happiness. So I think Aristotle's on my side rather than <laughs> your side. And I think human life contains all sorts of awful things, and some of the terrible mistakes we make are part of the tapestry, aren't they? Yes. So We'll all listen to you. We'll all live very efficient lives. All no, live the no, no, no. Fattently not.
1: are fat not efficient. I think, I think the great mistake that business has made, because for various, for actually driven by various cognitive biases, business people making a decision are very, very eager. Actually, when someone makes a business decision, what they're thinking unconsciously at least, is not really, is this the best decision I can possibly make. It's how easy is this decision to defend, how easy is it to sell, and how likely is it to get me fired, Uh, the last one being a product of loss aversion. And so there's an extraordinary rush to mathematical models which are apparently plausible and seemingly scientific, even when those models may actually be a very poor depiction of of, of reality. Uh, You know, dud metrics are chased by businesses obsessively beyond the point where they have any translation into customer benefit for example and what all I'm concerned about is I think and they're only about I, mean, I suppose behavioral economists I suppose uh, Darwinian psychologists they're, they're even Darwinian economists now there is a small body of people who say no no capitalism works not because it's based on mathematics and physics but because it's true to our biology and I think simply understanding that, that's a far better defense, by the way, of capitalism than you know, a rather pathetic appeal to maths. The best example of this, I think the best single four-word sentence uttered in the last century was E.O. Wilson, um, who is probably one of the greatest evolutionary biologists of all time, and also the world's greatest expert on ants. Uh, That makes him a myrmecologist, as opposed to a formicologist, which is an expert on kitchen surfaces. But but E.O. Wilson, who is the world's leading expert on ants, when Marxism was described to him, he replied very simply in four words, beautiful theory, wrong species. (laughs) Um, And I I think that's the point I'm simply making, which is that uh, you know, I, I think you know most of the patterns of business exist not because of some peculiar mathematical justification about efficiency, which I think we might pursue to a dangerous extent in many ways. Actually, mm-hmm. Nassim Taleb attacks it from the point of view of efficiency, brings with it a kind of you know fragility, which can be dangerous if pursued to logical extremes. But also, there is a point at which you know this preoccupation with you know whatever can be numerically defined mm. as the only possible target to chase leads actually to behaviours which simply aren't, aren't in keeping with our, our biological
0: instincts. Well, you mentioned Nassim Teller, which sort of leads me to my next question, because in, in reading his recent book of, of aphorisms. It just made me think, well, he kind of reminded me of, of um, when I was young, I used to go to Blackpool on holiday, and at the end of the pier, <laughs> there was an old lady, Madame Clairvoyant, who would sit there with uh, large earrings and, and look into her crystal ball. And say things, things will happen in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I get the same degree of insight from Nassim Taleb that I did from Madame Claire <laughs> <laughs> Because he strikes me as the purveyor of the most obvious things dressed up in pseudo aphoristic language. I, f- I don't want you to defend him in particular. I will actually like defend him. You're welcome to. But what I'm, what I'm driving at is I wonder whether this new dimension in economics, of behavioral economics, and, and the application of psychology. To economics, which Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for, is really telling us anything that we didn't already know. Uh,
1: There's a difference between knowing instinctively and what you might call, um, you know, being, you know. uh, I'll give you a perfect example of this. I mean, it's a very interesting case. Um, First of all, Daniel Kahneman, when he spoke at the Hay Festival, uh, we just met him. He'd spoken to you. Ogilvy in the IPA a few days before, it was very interesting, went on stage in the Hay Festival. Someone asked the question, are there any System 1 businesses? And System 1, of course, is Kahneman's phrase for those parts of the brain, by far the greater part of our brain, which makes decisions instinctively, heuristically, often unconsciously. And that can process something like 11 megabits a second, whereas our conscious brain can process about 40 bits a second. So, you know, actually human decision making is rather similar to driving. Yes, every now and then we make a conscious decision to turn left, but most of our accelerating, decelerating and other actions actually take place kind of, you know, uh, without conscious intervention. And interestingly, Taleb said, yes, he said, um, uh, said, advertising is a system one business. And then he paused and said, and so is politics. Interestingly, I think your business is a system one business, in that you have to translate The language of hyper-rational business language of spreadsheets, of everything being effectively quantifiable. It's kind of a nonsense world in many ways. Into language which actually emotionally motivates, which convinces, which has its effects Uh, on that greater part of the human brain, which actually, in many cases, I think business writes... Jonathan Haidt has this brilliant model of the human brain, which is the rider on the elephant. I mean, the rider is really system two, the rational part, and the elephant is system one. And his point about that model is, first of all, um, you know, the elephant is is really all-powerful. The rider ultimately can't get the elephant to do anything it does not want to do. That we can sort of, we might be able to nudge our instincts a bit, but we can't override them. The second thing to realise, by the way, is that the rider is also delusional, in that he genuinely believes he's in control of the elephant, simply because it occasionally seems to, you know, its actions seem to correspond to, to, to its instructions whereas in most of the cases, beautiful phrase actually you can hardly beat, I think this might be height as well, which is our conscious brains think they're the oval office, but in reality they're the press office. They think they're making active decisions, <laughs> but in reality most of the time they're issuing hurriedly constructed post-rationalisations and explanations for actions that have already ha- happened elsewhere. Now, but what, why, what why you I think is
0: we may anything that
1: Freud No, 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 we're waiting. We're pa- pause on this one. Okay, uh, it's, wor- it's worth thinking about this. First of all, quite a lot of the time, we end up writing software for the wrong operating system. We're talking to the rider when we need to be talking to the elephant. And a lot of nudge theory, I think, revolves around that. The second thing is, I agree with you. Left to their own devices, consumers actually deploy all manner of instincts in pretty intelligent ways. Their instinct for reputation, for example, is an evolved instinct which predates the existence of money by millions of years. Um, Instincts not always attractive, status-seeking, chimpanzees are worse than we are, for example. Okay. What's interesting about it is I was talking to Peter Bottin about this precisely beforehand. Um, is uh, there's a Nobel Prize winning paper by George Akerlof called "The Market for Lemons: Inf- Information Asymmetry and the Market Mechanism," which talks about breakdown of trust in the second hand uh, car industry, and it, it won him the Nobel Prize along with Joe Stiglitz and Michael uh, Spence. But this paper won him the Nobel Prize for writing in economic terms and using some of the maths of game theory, something that everybody who's bought a second-hand car ever already knew, Okay, that it might be dodgy, and I'm really looking for signs that this guy is someone I can trust. Okay, But the point is that if you take that point, that neoclassical economics, because it basically took credit for the triumph over communism that happened in the you know, latter part of the last century, has become extraordinarily self-aggrandizing and influences the thinking of business people and politicians to an extent which is completely excessive. And so the strange thing is you have a neoclassical model of human behavior which is based entirely on self-interest. It treats us as a purely individualistic kind of spot-like species, um, unaffected by things like, well, we operate in a world of perfect information and perfect trust, that's the first assumption. So that's a world in which marketing or speech writing shouldn't exist. All you need to do is post the information and people can decide. You know, that no emotions such as regret or fear or doubt or vengeance or the urge to reciprocate, none of those should affect our behaviour at all. So it's an extraordinary, if I may be slightly politically incorrect, it's a very, very autistic model of a species, the Homo economicus, that doesn't exist and actually couldn't survive.
0: Do you think people ever really thought there was a description of human beings? I mean, that's just a heuristic or analysis, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's every bit like Rawls's. Um, veil of ignorance. It's not that he really thinks human beings are like that. It's just an interesting way of dividing uh, up the world so you can make an interesting point. It's a form of elucidation. It's well, not a theory of human nature. Where well, well,
1: well, 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 I should be a little bit more cautious is that really good economists know that. And they know all models are wrong, yeah. but some of them are useful.
0: I mean, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiment, yeah, for
1: example, contains yeah, all of this. The German, the German school is Das Adam Smith Problem, which is the, you know, the conflict between <laughs> right. the two books. Yeah, but okay. well, there's no conflict.
0: <laughs> um, there is no conflict. There's no but, conflict within Adam no, Smith, they're, they're by the way.
1: School. However, there is a conflict when you get some of the more bonkers people in the Chicago school. Now, that doesn't matter, because they're really bright guys, and they know the failings of what they're proposing. Where it is a problem is if you look at the Economics 101 that's kind of taught at business school which infuses, uh, you know, business decision-making. Um, it infuses the finance functions of companies and has made, of course, if you think about it, it probably made the finance function within business too powerful because just as in the 12th century England you couldn't get a good position if you didn't speak Northern French, um, to some extent if you can't speak the language of finance now, if you can't speak spreadsheet... You know, certain of the levers of power and decision-making are basically denied to you. And that, that concerns me, because really, that's only a valid approach if we believe that the numbers on which those things are based and the models are really, really valid. And they're actually appallingly psychologically blind. Mm. I think there's been quite a change in most
0: corporate uh, leaders who are very intrigued and interested in trying to write up a new version of the company, because they are the receiving end of this, most uh, corporate leaders, because they... They are subject to the tyranny of quarterly earnings reporting and the, and the short-term horizons of stock markets. And I've, had, I've written this speech endlessly. In fact, I'm bored to death of it, um, writing the speech about how the company is more than just a, a vehicle for shareholder value, and it's got to be rooted in its place, and all that <laughs> bullshit. Um, <laughs> it's better than I'm, not saying I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> it. The reason it's so boring is it's, it, it strikes me so deeply obvious and I very rarely meet anyone who disagrees with it. And one of my rules for speech writing is if you, don't, if you can't disagree with something I'm saying, then I'm being vacuous. And I think when I write that, I'm being a bit vacuous.
1: Oh, I, think, I think, by the way, finding a scientific basis for common sense is not a bad pursuit. I'm perfectly proud to do that, because the danger is... Um, let me give an example, okay? If you look at game theory... There's a very, very big difference between the strategy you adopt in repeated iterative games where you know the participant you're dealing with and can therefore reciprocate or retaliate over time, and one-off games. In one-off games, the levels of trust are much lower because your interests really are much more... It's much more of a zero-sum game. There's no possibility of establishing reputation or trust or whatever. Now, if you think about the shareholder value movement, which basically says you're only as good as your next quarter causes businesses to engage in body language, which is short-termist and therefore undermines trust. Now advertising is an interesting thing because it's an upfront expense which only pays off in the long term. So one of the ways in which advertising may work, game theoretically, is it basically says the fact that you're spending money on this thing which only pays off over time is effectively evidence that you have a long-term commitment to the markets you serve. Now that's interesting because If you look at advertising, how people consider advertising, game theory has played no part in it. Game theory is probably more important to understanding human behaviour than economics is, in some senses. You know, we've evolved, um, chimpanzees have an amazing game theoretic instinct, and so on. And so, just changing the vocabulary is kind of useful. Now. You know, the problem with advertising is advertising worked, but it had a terrible... I mean, advertising and marketing have this vocabulary which is like a vocabulary of astrology. If you're talking to fellow believers, it all sounds fine. You know? If you've got a friend, if you believe in astrology, and your friend believes in astrology, you can say, my girlfriend's boyfriend's really playing up, but he, she is a Sagittarius. And the other person goes, oh, I know, they're like... that." it's a perfect, between the two of you, it's a perfectly sensible conversation. But to anybody outside, you're deranged. And the argument argument I've always given is going to someone in finance or engineering, with a background in engineering or finance, and talking about brand iconography, is basically like going to the head of thoracic surgery at St Mary's Hospital Paddington and saying, we must trust to the healing power of the crystal. (laughs) (laughs) And so, if nothing else, if you can simply dress up the common sense of a business, but dress it up in language which is actually agreeable to the people you're talking to, we're, we're all in the translation business. We translate between system two and system one. You know, we translate between you know one person's argot, you know, the argot of politics and popular
0: speech, and so forth. And so, um, I,
1: I would, no apologies not mm.
0: apologise. Yeah, no, I think that is what we're doing. I, I often, I like to, um, whenever my grandma talks to me, I make sure I make, I take extensive notes now. Yep on the, the grounds that she's just about to say something which will win a Nobel Prize in about 20 years. <laughs> I don't trust that secondhand car thing. At the mob's brilliant, yeah,
1: I've always gone, but hold on. I mean, the thing that fascinates me is how instinctive it is. When when we, were, we I left university with a bunch of friends at the same time, we all moved back down into London in the late 80s. And about five years later, all of us started buying our first car, which was kind of a secondhand battered car. Now, secondhand cars are actually cheaper in London than they are in the provinces. But all of us instinctively did the same thing. We all went back to Yorkshire or South Wales or whatever, and we bought our first second-hand car from someone who is vaguely known to our dad. (laughs) And what you realise is that the instinct for trust, first of all, there's a reputational feedback loop there. The guy who sells me a car with with sawdust in the gearbox has to face my dad in the pub. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Someone you buy from in London, all you've got is his pay as you go mobile phone number, which probably changes fortnight <laughs> but, but the extent to which trust and those things, which are hugely important to business, but which they're deeply instinctive, so, so much that they belong to parts of the brain which aren't always actually accessible to introspection. And I think that's really, really
0: interesting. How do you combine that with scale? Because one of the great problems for a huge company is to get that kind of trust, which comes, as you say, through connection and and rooted in a a very particular place. But when when you're operating across 27 countries and thousands of employees and, and millions of customers, how do you engender that degree of trust? Because it's very, very hard to do at that scale, isn't it?
1: A lot of it, we forget this. When we use system two language, we always talk as if we're a maximizer, okay? We always want the the best of something, because that makes us seem credible and plausible people. Most system one decisions are actually what Herbert Simon calls satisficing, which is how can I be sure this isn't crap? I always use this to explain the, the success of McDonald's. Is it ever the best restaurant in town? No. But it's never terrible, okay? By which I mean I've had food poisoning from Michelin-starred restaurants much more often than I've had it from McDonald's. Okay? Will I get ripped off? No. Will I get ill? No. Will I be significantly disappointed? It's incredibly good at not being bad. <laughs> all right. give it its credit you know, we've all been to expensive restaurants and ended up on the lavatory for the afternoon let's give them a bit of brilliant Ray Kroc observation brilliant behavioural observation people don't want the best burger in the world they want a burger that's just like the one they had last time you know, fantastic insight in driving a business you may not like it but you've got a kind of, of it, okay? Um now what I'm saying there is actually a large part of this stuff is getting rid of what's really terrible we always forget that because we always talk about this ideal but you know not tolerating I think that's one of Ogilvy's corporate culture strengths is that it may take longer than it should, but when you get kind of bad eggs as all large organizations do, the, you know the mills grind slow, but they, those people do go. and I think that's really important.: I think that's interesting yeah. in
0: government too, where not enough people realize the job is to get rid of what's rubbish. Get rid of what's wrong. That's actually really crucial. But if I make credit to Seem
1: talent he calls this the via negativa, that the best way to improve things is to take the thing that's really bad and remove it. Mm. And we don't tend to do that first. I mean, diet, you know, a lot of people say just don't eat sugar, actually. Mm. You know, so that's, that via negativa
0: approach is really, really interesting. And... Um, uh, we're we're running into our break. I'm gonna put could, I could go on for eight. Can I
1: Tiny? Yeah. First of all I want to thank you immensely for this double-edged honour. And uh, the reason I it, I can't decide whether I can't decide whether to trumpet it from the rooftops or keep really quiet about it. And let me explain why. I, I worked with an art director in advertising. He was genuinely the most mischievous and arguably malicious person I've ever worked with. Um, he's now at Church of England Vicar in Norfolk, so make him that <laughs> But just to give you an example of how malicious this chap was, um, if you ever paid with your credit card uh, in a restaurant uh, with him, he would always say within earshot of the waiter, why does it say Rory Sutherland on your credit card, Barry? Okay. Secondly, he would go to Harvey Nichols and zone in on... You know the women you occasionally get Harvey Nichols or Selfridges who were wearing the GDP of Chad on their back. I mean, expensively dressed and elaborately made-up people imaginable. And he'd go up to them and say, have you got this in a 12? <laughs> and watching their faces sink just, just, just brightened this afternoon. But the third thing he always said is, if you want to ruin life for your best man at your wedding, just say, and ladies and gentlemen can I now introduce you to the funniest man in the world? <laughs> so appearing on stage with Business Communicator of the Year is actually a disaster, um, uh, because expectations, our, our, our satisfaction with anything is driven not by the absolute values, but by our level of expectation. That's why Ryanair survives, you see. It's because we expect so little. That when we're not pistol-wet by Serbian mercenaries at the departure gate, we actually go, oh, that wasn't too bad then, was it? So, so I am immensely grateful and immensely flattened, but I'd be grateful if you kept quiet about
0: it as well. I thank you very much. Thank you very much.